Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I've got a fan favorite back on the podcast with me today. I've got Jared Ford. Mm, uh, yes. Probably our second most popular Ford after Julia. Um, <laughs> we've got to get her back on the podcast. But Jared, it's great to have you on, man. And uh, w- one of the things I wanted to do was introduce you. For those of you that haven't heard Jared before, I think the last time we podcasted was before COVID, which is a little hard to believe. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is to get to talk about the articles that you're publishing right now for us at So We Speak. And so just a little bit of background. Um, Jared is has an MDiv from Southern in Louisville. He's working on his PhD, and we'll talk a little bit about the PhD work because it's going to come into today's topic a little bit. But also a new adjunct at Voice, so teaching undergraduate students and probably the greatest accomplishment, uh, husband to Julia and father of four amazing kids. Yeah, I'm helpful. I'm happy to, you know, be self-deprecating relative to my wife. So keep those descriptions coming. (laughs) (laughs) So Jared, uh, one of the things I want to point out is we've got this series of articles that you published. I think we've gotten two or three of them by the time this airs. And it's a four-part series called Paul in Perspective. And the reason I think the impetus behind publishing these is you come to the New Testament text, and I think people just reading on a Bible reading plan or something will notice, Paul's really hard to understand sometimes. And in fact, Peter even says that in Second Peter. He says, you know, I know Paul's letters are difficult to understand. I know that there are some things in there that are complicated, uh, but bear with it. And the, the thing about it is you notice that when you read something like Galatians or Romans or, uh, you know, even the end times ideas in First and Second Thessalonians, And then you realize when you get into a little bit of the commentaries and the literature around Paul, he is highly controversial in the scholarly literature. In fact, there are several areas of scholarship just totally devoted to figuring out what it is that Paul means in single verses and then in his worldview as a whole. So what I love about these articles is it walks us into this area where scholars have been debating what Paul means. And I think there's some really big takeaways for us as we read our Bibles and as we try to understand some of the arguments that he's making, especially around some big topics like the new covenant and the old covenant, or um, the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the law, the works of the law, um, Paul's Jewish identity and his conversion to Christianity. So all of these topics are um, hotly disputed. And I think there's some things we can learn from them. So I wanted to just kick it off and say, in your mind, what are the issues that we should be thinking about when we think about uh, putting Paul in the proper perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. So let me just reiterate something that Cole just said, which is it might seem like a lot of this stuff is esoteric because it is. I remember being a layperson and hearing academics kind of wax eloquently about things that they were studying. And to me, it, it honestly seemed pretty useless because it was so out there. It was impossible that it would be pragmatic to someone that was going to church Sunday in, Sunday out, just wanted to learn who God was and what he has done for us in Jesus. But the truth is, especially when it comes to the new perspective and understanding Paul, That stuff that seems esoteric eventually trickles down, so point one. But point two, also there are a lot of pieces whenever we're reading Romans and Galatians that do have to do with the gospel itself, how we're saved, what God's plan of redemption looks like specifically, that the new perspective has helped us to account for. So it is, even though it's hard to see sometimes, uh, 
it is practical and does affect what we call the gospel pretty directly. So what are the issues? So there's there's two big um, categories of issues, let's say. So one category, I'll call it like the methodological issue, not even asking what specific texts mean, but how we figure that out in the first place. Mm-hmm. You might say, well, we just read Romans and uh, Galatians. That's how you figure it out. Duh. It's like, that's true. But there's always a risk in misunderstanding if you don't do what has now become really popular and understand something of the background of the culture that Paul was writing in, the people he was addressing, what sort of nuance the individual words that he's using is. And I know your dad really likes background studies, and this is why. Like, you know, the farther and farther the world um, is that these letters operated in is away from your own culture, the harder it is to understand. I think in post three, I'll talk about that in more detail. So that's one big issue. And, And to get it a little bit more granularly, do we understand Paul as a Greek? Do we understand him as a Jew? Do we understand him as a Christian? And if we choose one of those, what does that mean? Who do we read to understand him? Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, the methodological issue. And then part of it's just simply interpretive. There are certain pieces of what Paul says that are hard to place if you reduce his theology down to we are saved by faith through grace, kind of your classic Ephesians 2, 8, 9 summary of the gospel, which is good. But then it's You have to ask the question, let's take Romans 2. Why does Paul say that a Jew is only truly Jewish if he is one inwardly? What does that have to do with his gospel? Because he seems to think it's pretty fundamental. Or let's take Galatians 4. Why does Paul say that Sarah and Hagar are two covenants? I mean, that text is so confusing that a lot of people have simply relegated it to this kind of illustration type setting where it's just trying to illustrate that points Paul has already made. So what happens when we read Romans and Galatians that otherwise seem pretty clear is we tend to gloss over these passages. And I think part of seeing the variety within Pauline studies has helped us to actually account for those pieces because it has broadened what Paul intends to say. He doesn't, although justification by faith, we are saved by faith through grace is very clearly fundamental to Paul's thought. Widening what is included in what is fundamental to Paul's thought helps you to say, oh, this is what those weird texts are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So on specifically on that front, there are a few things. So is Paul's thinking just about being made right with God? So the new perspective says no. Um, As you'll see, if you read the articles, I think they overreach in correcting that. But what are the other issues? So not just being made right with God, Second huge issue is how do Jew and Gentiles relate in salvation history? So growing up, I tended to think of the Jew and Gentile people as being completely separate groups. God in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament dealt with the Jews as people who were to earn his favor by works, whereas the big payoff of the New Testament, the payoff Jesus's death is that he created this new church where salvation was by grace alone. But again, that's a view that's really hard to square with some of the things that Paul says. For example, and most obviously, Romans 4, Galatians 3, Abraham is the father of Gentiles. Very interesting statement, right? If those two groups are completely separate, what in the world does that mean? Um, And then probably the third big issue is related to the first, but it's slightly different, is 
is the gospel about human means of salvation? And so what I mean by that is it's either works or faith. We either exercise works and try to earn our salvation, or we exercise faith and receive it as a gift. Um, There's questions about that. An alternative explanation is it's a contrasting of human, a human means of salvation and a divine means of salvation. So the human means would be the same as what I said at first, which is we, we um, work to earn our salvation. But is that being contrasted with believing, us believing, us humans as believing, or is that being contrasted with the faithfulness of Jesus? in Galatians and Romans. And we can talk about specific texts and where that is an issue. But I would say those are probably the biggest issues are the methodological side. How, who do we understand Paul against the interpretive side? And within that, is it just about being made with right with God? How do we deal with these Jew Gentile texts that are everywhere in Romans, Galatians that we tend to overlook? Is it even talking about means of salvation? it meaning Romans and Galatians. Is it talking about means of salvation or is it broader than that? And there's more to it, but I think the the conversation boils down to those big issues. Yeah, I mean, that's really helpful. So if I were to summarize these, and I want to take these one by one, um, because like you said, I think there's a lot of helpful resources. I mean, theology done at its best uh, is not just for other theologians to argue about. Theology at its best is to help us understand our Bibles better, help us understand how to follow Christ. And I think there's some real wisdom here. So the, the first one being Paul's background. Was Paul primarily Jewish or was he Greek? Is he writing to Jews or Greek? And should we read him against the backdrop of Jewish or Greek thought or some mix of the two? The second one being, you know, how are we justified? How, how and, and is that the most important issue? It just does Paul, um, and this will follow from the first issue, is Paul reading against a backdrop of guilt and works-based salvation that now in the new covenant we have faith and grace-based salvation. And then on the third, uh, what's the relationship between faith and works, uh, both in these two groups of people and in his letters? How is he, how is he talking about this? So if we start at the beginning, uh, this gets us into the question of Paul's background, right? So what is his background as a human being? And, and what is in these letters, who is he writing to? What difference does it make? I guess that's the first question is, what difference does it make if he's more Greek than Jew? What difference does it make if he's writing to Jews as opposed to Greeks? What, what, can, we, what can we learn from asking this question? Yeah, so it goes back to what I said in terms of learning the nuance of what he's saying. So, for example, some of these pieces that we can't make sense on, on the interpretive side, like for us, let me say this, for me as a... Southern Baptist evangelical, I don't naturally have the question of how does a Jew relate to a Gentile? How am I, you know, how are those two people distinct? But Paul does. Mm-hmm. And so some of the things he says in his letters only make sense if you recognize that for the Jewish people, this was a giant question. How do we as God chosen people relate to everybody else? Um, so that's how, and to give a modern example, I, I write about this in my post, but I'll go ahead and spoil it. So suppose you were, you know, reading a letter from, let's say, the 19th century, and you see that whoever this individual is, she's talking about a trip to, I think, Chicago is what I write in the post, and she talks about seeing the elephant. Now, you might think it's a little bit weird that she uses the definite article, the, to describe seeing an animal, but 
maybe you think, oh, this is like some special elephant, some special like Dumbo or something that she went to go see. And you move on. She went to the zoo. She had fun with her family. But if you do a little digging into the 19th century background, you'll, you'll realize that uh, to see the elephant is basically slaying to see the sights. Um, it has nothing to do really with the animal elephant at all. But to know that, you would have to know something of that cultural background. And the same is true of Paul. So it to, to kind of put a bow on it, knowing something of the background that Paul was operating in and the background that fills up his words keeps us from misunderstanding him, very simply. Mm -hmm. If we don't know the background, it's possible, even likely, that we might read things into certain things that Paul said that he never intended, which is obviously not a good thing. We want to try to understand Paul along with the rest of the Bible as best we can, and the cultural background helps us to do that. Mm -hmm. So moving from that then, who Paul is writing to and, and what he's reflecting on makes a big difference in how he approaches something like salvation. And you've already mentioned this, but one of the big divides that you see in Paul, and I think this is probably, I think reading Romans, this is probably the biggest key to the argument that's easy to miss, is that there's a difference between Abraham and the covenant with Abraham and Moses and the covenant that has the law. Um, for the Jewish people. So if you're going through Romans or Galatians, you realize that Paul points out that the promise is made to Abraham before the law, a long time before the law. Um, and that the law comes along almost as uh, almost sitting inside the Abrahamic covenant. And so one of the arguments that he makes yeah. is the law can't make anybody righteous, but that doesn't make the law unimportant. And we can talk about the reasons why that is, because right. Abraham, he says, was justified by faith. And so he uses that in Romans to talk about how we can be free from sin apart from the law. Well, this is this is a really complicated argument right. when you look back at the way the Old Testament covenants function and the way that the law functions. So when you have what's called the new perspective on Paul, you have people beginning to realize that maybe the way that we've read Paul from the Reformation forward doesn't take into account um, what the Jews of that day actually believed. And this helps right. us understand what Paul means by justification or what it means to be a child of Abraham. And so usually, usually the way we interpret this is we look, we go to the gospels, we look at the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees sound very legalistic they are works-based, they are basically trying to earn God's favor, and then we read Paul and we say, oh, it's not works that gets you saved, it's faith in Christ. So the Jews were legalists, and in the New Covenant, we uh, are saved by grace through faith. What did the new perspective come along and say about that reading of Scripture? Yeah, that's a good question, and this is a big area where you see that elephant illustration come to bear. So what if it were the case that you could read all the stuff, all the Jewish stuff around the time Paul was writing Romans and Galatians, and not one of them did you find saying, you can earn your salvation, work mm -hmm. out your salvation because it's us who earns it, and so on. I think it would cause you to pause and ask, well, what is Paul addressing when he's talking about not, you know, being justified, not being saved by works. Um, you would probably second guess that you were understanding him rightly, because when we read, let's take the phrase works of the law, all right? Generally, people read that as general effort. I do, 
you know, the Ten Commandments my entire life, and I will be declared righteous at the end of it. I will be welcomed into God's open arms. We just think of works of the law as synonymous with simple effort and contrast that with faith. But what if that's not what that means? Mm-hmm. So the new perspective came along and tried to read all the Jewish stuff, tried to read all the Jewish literature. And what they argued initially, and I, I think we can talk about where they went awry, but what they argued initially is that these Jewish first century writers thought the exact same thing about grace that Paul thought. So the the gospel of grace, this good news, this good new news was not new news at all, according to these guys. Jews had been preaching it for a long time. And so that was kind of the initial push away from Luther's view. Again, Luther thought that Paul, like many of us, and I think rightly so, that Paul was writing to address trying to earn your salvation but versus receiving it by grace through faith. And these new guys were like, no, no one thought that you could try to earn your salvation. Everyone thought it was by grace through faith, to use that term. So Paul must be saying something else. Mm-hmm. That was the first push. Yeah, and the text that this comes into, this, this really comes into focus, is we tend to read uh, the Jewish reality outside of Christ through the lens of like Romans chapter 7, for example. Yeah. So Paul is saying, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. And what I do want to do, I can't do. And I have this war going on inside of me. And we say, okay, he must have been in so much psychological turmoil over his sin and trying to keep up with the law. And and we read back onto the Jewish people. We look at something like Deuteronomy or something like Leviticus. And we say, oh my gosh, it would have been so hard to keep all these 613 commandments. (laughs) Nobody could do that. It would be totally impossible. They must've been in so much anguish trying to keep up with these laws that finally when grace comes into the picture, they must've been so relieved. And so that's one way to read uh, these scriptures. The problem is you read Paul say things in Philippians, for example, where he says, as to the law, blameless. Yeah. Wasn't even a big deal for me. Yeah. Um, he doesn't seem to have any trouble keeping the law. And in fact, when he does talk about sin in his own life, like in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, I am the chief of sinners, he doesn't refer there to the law at all. He refers right. to persecuting Christians. Right. And so one of the things we have to square with Paul, and this is where I think this can be really helpful for our reading of the New Testament, is one of the things we have to square with Paul is the struggle that we typically impose upon the law and then these statements that Paul makes where he doesn't seem to have a lot of trouble keeping the law. That's right. And this is where the new perspective comes in and says, well, maybe the Jews weren't that worried about how hard it was to keep the law. Maybe instead they they already believed in grace through the sacrificial system, through being God's covenant people, through having the covenant of Abraham kind of overarching the covenant uh, yeah. with, with, with or, or the law in the covenant of Moses. So the new perspective speaks into this and says, maybe it's not as legalistic in the old Testament as we think it is. Maybe, maybe Paul and the other um, apostles didn't have as much trouble keeping the law as we think they did. That really, that really presents things in a new light. That's right. Think of Psalm 119, right? You know, that psalmist is talking about how much he loves the law and how it's like a breath of fresh air and so on. Not many Christians would say that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, what you have the new perspective doing is saying that 
what is found in that psalm is typical of first century Jews. That That's not the sort of legalism that we typically attribute to the Jews. So yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and the part out that always gets me about Psalm 119 is you realize they didn't even have the whole Bible at that point. They didn't even have the good. Bible. I know. Yeah. All he's talking about there is like the Torah. Just yeah, loves exactly. the Torah. It's like honey on his lips. He just lives for the Torah. Oh, yeah. And you're like, these books, there's so many, so many books that are better. Yeah, if you're not uh, feeling but what the way you realize this- is they cherished the law because it was God speaking to them. It was their heritage. Exactly. So you think about the whole time coming out of Egypt, being at the slopes of Mount Sinai, and God speaking to his people. They saw the law as a relationship with God. So they relate to God through the law. And I think that part of the the new perspective is a really helpful critique. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that um, they, if you, just if you look at that initial push and how they did it, looking at pieces of first century Jewish literature, there are, are some people that sound like Paul, somewhat. There are some people that don't sound like Paul and do sound exactly like what he's critiquing. But there are some that talk a lot like him and talk about the graciousness of God. Um, and we can talk about more about why that's not that significant later. But it's important to know on the front end that the new perspective at this point, really, there's something to what they're saying. They are not completely wrong. Some first century Jews did have a pretty robust view of grace. So I want to move, though, and talk a little bit about maybe where there's an overcorrection or areas that we don't take um, some of this critique. And, and that would be, in my mind, the places where you see in the New Testament that Paul and the other apostles do see that there is proof from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ, right? You see this all through Luke and Acts. And when we did our overview of Luke a few weeks ago, we talked about this specifically. For Luke, one of the themes of the gospel is that Jesus, starting in the temple with Isaiah chapter 61, And then Paul, through the end of his life, are proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And so that continuity is really helpful, that they see in the scriptures what the Messiah should be like. But on the flip side of that, you also can't deny that a lot of people miss that. So Jesus, in his confrontations with the Pharisees, it's almost always over this issue. He says five times, have you not read, going to the scriptures, showing them that they have a wrong conception about what the Messiah is going to be like. Or when you look at Paul's missionary journeys in Acts, especially at the beginning, he is in the synagogues every place he goes, arguing and proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And it's not a coincidence then that the, the earliest persecution of the church, of which Paul was a part of, is from the Jews. Yeah. So one of the pushbacks on the new perspective is, Okay, if if this is so consistent with what the Jews were already teaching and believing, why did you have such a strong and visceral pushback from the Jews declaring Christians to be blasphemous, um, you know, departing from their religious beliefs, persecuting them? Why do you have that happen if they essentially believe the same thing? Oh, yeah, totally. And none of Paul's words from, let's say, Romans 9 on make any sense if— Paul didn't shift gears at all, or even Philippians 3, right? Philippians 3 is a favorite of the new perspective because of what you said earlier, which is it shows that Paul didn't have this like guilt-ridden conscience that was um, redeemed by the gospel like we tend to think of him. He thought the law was easy to keep, 
um, mm-hmm. if, if you just read that text. But even there, the reason he is bringing that up is to kind of give himself a softball that he can hit out of the park and say, look, I counted this all as rubbish for the sake of Jesus. He thought something had changed. Right. Everything we know about Paul suggests that something that has changed. So that is one of the bigger overcorrections, extreme sections of the new perspective say that not only was like the Christian faith similar to the Jewish faith, Paul basically remained a Jew in every way, shape or form for the rest of his life, which is clearly absurd. I mean, yeah, you have to erase just as much of what Paul says to get there that the new perspective would originally count on that the old perspective ignored. So it it makes no sense of a lot of what he says. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know what you call these guys at this point, if they're post-new perspective or new perspective <laughs> or whatever. But the people that have kind of been the second generation who argue that Paul really never converted, that yeah. he really just stayed a Jew, and what he did was formulate a way for Gentiles to almost become even better uh, converts, better proselytes than they had been right. before yeah. because of Jesus. Ultimately, you have to read back some really interesting things onto Jesus' ministry as well. So Jesus actually wasn't doing anything new. He was just coming and doing uh, what Judaism has always should have been. And again, there's a grain of truth in that, that Jesus is the faithful Israel, but he is also declaring a new covenant in his own blood. So there's some overcorrection there. The, the one piece I think is helpful there is the attention that people pay to the way that Paul regards the Jewish law and the Jewish traditions during his own ministry. So, for example, uh, even in my Bible reading right now, we're in the middle of Acts. And in Acts chapter 16, for example, Paul meets Timothy. And Timothy's mother is a Jew and his dad is a Greek. And Paul, it says, after he meets him, has Timothy circumcised because it says, Everybody knew that his dad was a Greek, which essentially means they knew that he hadn't been circumcised. So in order to be able to take Timothy into the temple, he circumcises him. So the problem, though, is you have a real big difference in the way that people interpret this issue. And things like Paul keeping certain ritual um, traditions. He takes a vow and shaves his head later in Acts. Um, He practices things that are pretty consistent with the Jewish law. The question then becomes for these for for the new perspective or the post new perspective, they read those things to say, no, Paul believed that Jews especially had to keep doing the whole law and Gentiles had to practice certain parts of the law, whether that's um, circumcision or dietary restrictions or something like that. Um, And then you have people basically to say, no, Paul didn't have any respect for the law. The law is gone. It is nothing. He didn't think about it at all. It has been done away with Christ. I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle on that. Yeah, I think so too. And it might seem like, wow, how can someone believe that Paul thought you still had to keep the law? I mean, listen to what he says in Galatians and Romans. And the logic for those extreme guys is actually pretty simple. It's okay, if we have, if it is true that the Jews believed in a, let's call it a gracious gospel, even though that's not what they would call it, but let's call it a gracious gospel. Why would Paul change as a Jew who already had this gospel? From him going to a grace gospel to a grace gospel would not be a change. So what's going on there? He would just remain with the law. And so the language that you see of him just blasting people that try to earn their salvation for these extreme guys only pertains to Gentiles, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's where they go is, yeah, I'll, I'll grant you all that language. We are justified not by faith, not by works. But that only pertains to the Gentiles because that was already true. Paul's a Jew. 
it might have been through the law, sure, but it's still by faith, not by works. And again, I recognize the tension there, but that is the logic of it. And then another thing that the new perspective like points out, but unfortunately overcorrects, is the Jew Gentile relation. So let's go back to works of the law. What are those? So as I said, most people think of them as just general works, whatever you do to earn salvation with God. Well, there's this guy named James Dunn, and this last post I talked about came along. He said, no, 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 it's only referring to a very specific type of work. That's why he says of the law, and he doesn't just say works. And these, these works were what he called boundary markers. So think of the weird stuff that you read in the Old Testament, like wearing clothing only made from one type of fabric or um, circumcision, uh, whereas the rest of the ancient Near East, which is where the Jewish people grew up, is kind of like their cultural milieu, didn't do that, generally speaking. It was a weird thing back then, even though it's common now. Or... Um, the different food laws that were clearly an issue of tension, like if you read Acts 15 in the first century. So he's like, it doesn't refer, he meaning James Dunn, it doesn't refer to any effort. It only refers to those specific boundary markers. So the, the beef that Paul has with the Jews has nothing to do with being made right with, or yeah, with the Jews, it has nothing to be made right to do with having been made right with God or how we're made right with God. It's more about their exclusivity. They wouldn't let anybody into their club. And Paul's like, mm-hmm. you have to. And so Paul, or excuse me, James Dunn trades out what we would think of as the gospel, how we're made white with God with this like almost social gospel, I guess is a way to say it, where it's more about inclusivity versus exclusivity. Now, the reason this is excessive is not because he's wrong that that was an issue. The Jew-Gentile divide was an issue. I'm going to read a text here in just a second to show you that it is. It's that he traded it out for the gospel, all right? Both of those things can be true. Paul can care about how Jew and Gentiles relate and care that one is made right with God by faith alone. So the classic text on this, of course, is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Gospel, all right? But read... T- 2.11. This is where we can kind of see where James Dunn is coming from. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So there you see James Dunn's peace. You see the classic piece, we are justified by faith. But then you also see Paul going into this, hey, Gentiles, remember that you weren't a part of the people of God. So James Dunn was right that the Jew-Gentile relation was a big issue for Paul. That's why he writes about it right after he explains the gospel. But it clearly wasn't the only issue. He, he, he cared about both. Um, but that is another big piece that the new perspective brought into, brought mm-hmm. into play. One of the last things I want to talk about is gets really practical here, and that's the relationship between faith and works. And in order to, to get to that, I want to mention another big um, debate. And I think this one's the one that probably people encounter first. If you hear the new perspective, and I know that a lot of our listeners, you've never heard this before, but if you do stumble upon this, usually what you come to is a, an argument that, that takes place over a single word. It's actually a couple of words, but really a single word 
in the genitive case, so in, in Greek, you have different cases for your nouns. And the argument is essentially, are we talking about, when we say faith in Christ, are we talking about putting our faith in Christ, or are we talking about what could be translated as the faithfulness of Christ? Yeah. Tell us why this is a big deal. Yeah, so this goes back to Sanders' original insight. So E.P. Sanders is the guy I wrote about in the first post. He's kind of the guy that did the legwork of reading the first century Jewish stuff. And this was kind of his answer to, okay, if Paul isn't blasting legalism, the idea that you can work for your salvation, what is he talking about? So instead of contrasting um, faith versus works, he wanted to emphasize that Paul was merely preaching that God saved us through Jesus. So when you say it's not faith in Jesus, it's the faithfulness of Jesus that saves us. Everyone would probably say like, yeah, duh. But the issue is, is that what he's talking about in Romans and Galatians? Is he talking about our faith or is he talking about Jesus' obedience in his life, death, and resurrection? So one of the places you see this debated is kind of towards the end of Romans 3.20, or Romans 3, excuse me. So starting in verse 20, Paul writes, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So far, so good, right? That sounds like the classic gospel that we have always heard. And then he pivots and says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And here's the important part. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, all right? So it looks like the way the ESV, which is what I'm reading, translated it, that Paul is saying it's not by works, it's by faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. The hard part is, this is where Cole was getting out with the genitive stuff, is that that faith in Jesus Christ can, if there's good contextual reasons, be translated as the faithfulness of Jesus, something that Jesus does, not what we do. So that is the issue, is, and I alluded to this earlier, is Paul primarily concerned with what we do as humans, as Christians, to be saved? Do we believe or do we work? Or is he concerned with what God did in Jesus? It's a little bit of a false dichotomy, of course. Mm-hmm. I would still argue, after having studied all this stuff, that the best reading of that particular phrase is the human one. Now, you might wince at that because it feels impious, but it's not. It's recognizing the the divinely ordained means of salvation that Paul repeatedly talks about, primarily in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Um, So that that is a big issue. It's hard to see without knowing Greek. Um, I don't even know if you can find a translation that renders it that way, but... Uh, you could probably find commentaries that will do that because it's a very popular view to take mm-hmm. that faith in Jesus as the faithfulness of Jesus. Yeah, again, to, to bring this back to a practical way that we actually read this in the text, I think what that I think what the new perspective there is calling attention to that's important for us to remember is the gospel doesn't happen apart from Jesus coming and living a perfect, sinless life. So there is an aspect that we sometimes miss that Jesus has to come and be perfect Israel. So he does uphold the law. He does make a complete and total payment for sin on behalf of all sin, all human sin to God. 
And he, by doing that, does what the Jews should have done from the very beginning, which is to bless all the nations because of their relationship with God. So if you look at the promise of Abraham, he says, through you, I'll bless all the nations of the earth. So Jesus does that perfectly. Well, I don't think we should translate this, the faithfulness of Christ. But if we were to, one of the things that would draw our attention to is the fact that Jesus' perfect work on the cross is what Israel was designed to do. So Jesus is perfect Israel. He's the perfect son of God. And us putting our trust in Christ would amount to nothing if Jesus hadn't lived and died and been faithful to what he was called to do, been sinless, died and rose from the dead on the third day. And so the basis for us being able to call upon the Lord, the basis for us to be able to be grafted into the covenant because we are Gentiles, is the fact that Jesus was faithful. Now, whether or not that verse actually says that, I've always found this a little bit interesting about the new perspective. Whether or not that verse says it, it's all over the New Testament that we should put our trust in Christ. Yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of whether this one verse says that or not. And uh, that's where you said, you know, this is kind of a false dichotomy because obviously the faithfulness of Christ is important. And I don't want to downplay the scholarship here, but the faithfulness of Christ is important. Right. And putting our faith in Christ is important. And I think both of those are things that have to go together in order to have salvation as we know it. Right, exactly. I, I don't think the hard part is with the new perspective is they say certain things that are true, but they make them too central. So, like, Mm -hmm. look, if you were to ask any Christian at any church that you go to, are you saved without Jesus being faithful to the law in his life and dying on the cross on your behalf and talking about all the things that is wrapped up in this idea that Jesus was faithful? They would look at you like you were crazy. Of of Mm -hmm. course, that's theologically true. But I think to get what's at issue here is recognizing that is that true in that phrase because what the what extreme versions of the new perspective want to do is kind of erase this dichotomy between that makes up basically the essence of the classic gospel um the protestant gospel like the the dichotomy between faith and works for whatever reason they wince against that um Mm -hmm. dichotomy and there are some like um ideological things behind that when it came to Sanders original work that we can get into if you want to, but they don't like this idea that the Jews are cast as first century legalists. And Paul is cast as this first century gospel of grace guy. They don't want that. So that's why that they turn to phrases like this and say, no, 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 it's not faith versus works. It's, it's the faithfulness of Jesus versus works. So to summarize the couple, a couple of practical points we've gotten so far would be, I think the new perspective gives a helpful pushback to remind us that the gospel in the New Testament is not as disjunctive with the Old Testament as we sometimes think it is. Yeah. There is probably more grace than we give credit for in first century Judaism. Um, obviously, we see when Paul is proving things from the scripture, there is a continuous whole between what God has spoken in the Old Testament and what we see in the New Testament. So that's a good reminder. And then, like we said, there's probably some overcorrection there in terms of what that actually means. And then here again, justification happens by grace through faith, trusting in Christ, 
but also because of the faithfulness of Christ. And, and again, probably an overcorrection, or I like the way you put it, making something a little bit too central uh, that probably people believe. I think that's another example of maybe a distinction without a difference because it is a false dichotomy. Right. The last thing I want to talk about is, is now that we've covered those, we can make some sense of um, faith and works. So on the one hand, we have the new perspective has brought our attention to the fact that all Jews were not legalists who believe that if you just worked hard enough and you get 51% to 49% good things, then you'll go to heaven in the end. <laughs> you take that for granted. I think most Christians still have a very uh, uncertain relationship with works. So Paul spends a ton of time in the New Testament talking about works. Uh, and you have that famous chapter in, in James 2 talking about, well, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without, without your works, and I'll show you my faith with my works. Um, because faith right. without works is dead. How can we, you know, as we read Paul's letters, we read Galatians, we read uh, Romans, we see, man, it is all about faith. So you put your faith, you are justified. Um, it's just as if you had never sinned. And then at the end of all Paul's letters, you get all these sections about what we should be doing and not doing. And that can be difficult to square. So how do we begin to reconcile, yes, you are saved by grace through faith. And yes, you actually have things that you should do as a Christian that don't earn God's favor, but they're still commanded. That's a great question. And I do think that's probably one of the most practical pieces of what the new perspective has brought in terms of the way it affects our lives. So to answer this question, I'm going to go to a particular text to work it out. So um, you mentioned James 2. Romans 2 actually makes this exact same point. So in that chapter, starting in verse 12, um, Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. I think he's talking about Gentiles there. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is Jews. Now, this is the kicker. 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What in the world does he mean there when not a chapter later, he was going to say that no one is justified by works of the law. So how do works and justification by faith work together? Well, part of the new perspective, part of what is helpful about the new perspective is recognizing that the gospel is not merely that we are made right with God. That probably is the central piece. I, I think that's definitely true, but Another really big piece is that God would liberate his people, not just forgive their sin, but liberate them from the power of sin that it has over them so that they might actually live righteous lives. And that's what he's talking about here. So keep reading a little bit farther. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, this is super debated, but I'm very confident that when he says they show the work of the law is written on their hearts, it's an echo of Jeremiah 31, 33, which is one of the biggest places in the Old Testament where you see the promise of the gospel. I will write my law on your heart. And he's not just talking about forgiveness there. What he's saying is you have this really jacked up heart, sinful it always chooses things that are not godly, but the good news is that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, not only does forgiveness come your way, but a new heart comes your way as well. And this new heart is what produces new fruit. 
And this is everywhere in the New Testament. So why is Paul telling us to do all these things or um, saying that we should look differently and so on? It's like, well, because as Christians, the gospel is not just you are forgiven by grace. It is that. It's also grace enables you to live the righteous life that God um, has always called you to. Now, you got to be careful here because we kind of live, you'll hear people talk about the overlap of the ages. So when you read, um, I think it's in Romans 8, um, we still have our fleshy pieces, right, that cause us to sin. It's no question that the Bible affirms the fact. I mean, like Cole said earlier, um, you know, Paul, when he's writing, I think it's in 2 Timothy, wherever he says he's the chief of sinners, it's either 1 or 2 Timothy. That's at the end of his life, and he calls himself the chief of sinners. So it's clear that sin is present in his heart. But at the same time, there's this paradoxical thing where it's like, but you are still a new creation. You are still enabled by God to live a righteous life. And that's huge. So very practically, it's not true that you are enslaved to sin as a Christian. It, it, it's, it's not true. Now, you still may sin. Um, and I think a lot of people say that because it feels pious, like kind of whack, you know, uh, uh, talking about how sinful we are in relation to God, which is, of course, true. But part of the issue with that is it doesn't recognize that in the gift of the gospel, God has given you the tools to repent of your sin. So that's what I mean by practical is I think the Bible, the Romans and Galatians, the heart of justification by faith are calling us as individual Christians to be more optimistic in our fight against sin than stopping the gospel at that particular point would otherwise communicate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. this is a big, this is kind of the thing not to miss, I think, in Paul's letters is the way that faith and obedience work together. You have to get them in the right order, and you have to make sure that they stay in the right sphere but Paul doesn't seem to think that there's a big, um, you know, chasm between obeying and doing the works uh, that we were designed to do, like Ephesians 2.10, right. and trusting in God and being declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And you, you covered this in, in the, one of the posts. I think this is post number two, where you introduced the topic of covenant gnomism, yeah. which is really a fancy way of saying in ancient Israel— they didn't have to do good works to get into the covenant. They did good works to, to basically stay in the covenant. And there's a lot of implications there that we, we can't get into, but basically life in the covenant, you're in the covenant because of faith, because of the promise to Abraham and by birth in the old Testament, but you show what life in the covenant looks like or what life with God looks like by following his commands. This is actually something that hasn't changed in the new Testament. So in the New Testament, we are justified by faith. We're not justified by our works. No matter how great you are, you, are, you have never been made right with God because of your works. But once you are in the covenant, right, once you are living with God, you have the Holy Spirit, you're in Christ, we should expect to do the things that God has designed us to do. And so you see this in the back half of these arguments. So in, in Galatians 5.14 and in Romans 13.8, you see Paul say things like the law is summed up with love God and love your neighbor. Or, you know, if you walk by the spirit, you will fulfill the law of love. So life in Christ is characterized by obeying the things that God has commanded us to do. That's just the way that it works to be with God is you be, you become transformed into a law keeper. 
And not necessarily the dietary laws, not necessarily the sacrificial laws, but like Paul says in Galatians 5, the law that is summarized by love your neighbor as yourself, or like Jesus says, the greatest commandment is love God. And the second is love, uh, love one another as, uh, or the do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if you have that, then you realize the whole Christian life is this is first faith and then obedience. Yeah. So when we read Paul, it's always in that order too. You have the theological, what is true, and then you have the practical, what you should do in most of his letters. And those right. things go together in our lives. And I think that's a that's an area where the new perspective has probably been another helpful nudge in giving us that template. Uh, but as we read the scriptures, we have to realize we actually have been called to obey God right. once we are in the covenant. Yeah, obedience matters at the fundamental level. Not that many people would explicitly voice that it doesn't, of course, but this kind of gives you the theological way of understanding why it matters. It's just not true. Like, to, it, it is true that God will forgive all of your sin in Christ. But to look at that presumptuously and say, I am going to just live in my sin, never repent because God's grace is never ending. Second part, true. First part, the Bible does not talk that way. The, the Bible is very clear. You were justified by faith. There's nothing you could do to earn your salvation and so on. But it's also clear, as you said, like that person who is so justified looks a particular way. He looks like he has been made spiritually alive. Um, and be encouraged by that. I mean, if, if you're feeling worn out in your fight against sin, this gives you encouragement because you're not fighting on your own. It's like, okay, now I'm justified. Now I got to go work at this. It's like, no, in the gospel, God has both declared you in the right and giving you the tools necessary to fight your sin. You're fighting with God's tools. I mean, there's nothing more encouraging than that, I don't think. Yeah, well, Jared, thanks for writing these posts and thanks for this discussion because I think this demonstrates, like we said earlier, theology at its best. These are these are things that people that are really smart, have done a lot of research, have written about in an academic setting that trickle down into the way that we actually understand Paul and his letters. And I think uh, if you'll go and read these posts, you'll get a great historical look at the way that these positions have developed and you'll get a lot more a sense of some of the particulars. But I think you'll come away with these practical um, applications that as we read, we can't overlook the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. We can't overlook what it means to be justified by faith. And we can't overlook that, that we, having been justified by faith, are now called to obey God, and we've been empowered to do it. So, Jared, thanks again for writing that, and thanks for being on the So We Speak podcast. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.